Welcome to Gigami, the podcast for up-and-coming musicians who are serious about turning their talent into a career. I'm Dave Holly. I've toiled in the trenches of the music industry, man and boy, for more than 30 years. Each week I talk to an artist or exec about their experience of how the industry really works and what you can do to give yourself the best chance of breaking into it and build a good life and make a good living while creating the fantastic music you were put on earth to create. If you have any questions or just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co. That is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. I'll always reply. Until then, on with the show. Today's guest is Phil Nelson. Phil wears three hats in the music industry. He's a manager who's looked after artists for more than 30 years, including The Levelers, who have headlined Glastonbury, had a platinum and five gold albums, the Grammy award-winning Aqualung, platinum-selling Duke Special, and Mercury-nominated Sweet Billy Pilgrim. Phil also lectures in music at BIM Institute and runs a research company called pathwaysintomusic.com, which researches the journey DIY artists take into the industry. Welcome to this episode of Gigami. My guest today is Phil Nelson. Phil, thanks very much for agreeing to come on this podcast and and welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. My pleasure. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about your career to date to start with? How you got where you are and, and, and a little bit about what you do now? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been a fairly uh, um, sort of complicated, twisty, turny career in some ways. Uh, music has always been my passion, starting off with classical music. And actually, being a classically trained bassoonist hasn't necessarily been the most useful of my supposed talents. But actually, understanding the classical music industry has been no bad thing. Um, I sang in, an, in a band for a little while and then realised that I was never going to be very good at that. So then realised that good bands needed managers and um, way back before there was any training for such things I happened to share a flat with a member of a band called The Levellers which took me into band management which was my main job, my only job in fact, for um, about 25 years. So there's lots we can talk about uh, during that long process. I will actually write a book about that one day. Uh, But these days um, I wear three hats I suppose. I continue to manage artists. I love doing that and it's an ever-changing and exciting you never know what's around the corner um, part of my career I lecture in music business now that the music business is such a complex thing to to navigate it's really important I think and so I do that mostly for postgraduate students at the BIM colleges the British and Irish Modern Music Institute as it's currently called although it's just about to get university status I think so it might change its name so I I lecture at their London and Brighton um, colleges and a little bit in Bristol and Dublin as well. And then finally, um, because I realised that the music industry is so complicated and that there are bits that I think need further um, twisting apart, um, I have a research organisation with somebody called Chris Cook, who uh, runs CMU, Complete Music Update. We run a thing you can find um, at pathwaysintomusic.com And that's really, again, something we're bound to pick apart today, um, looking at the journey that DIY artists take in the main and um, how complicated that is and how they maybe need some help in navigating it when they're all on their own. Plus, in fact, the fact that I would argue that music education and the music industry don't really understand each other very well and, and maybe need some help in actually 
uh, being a bit more symbiotic in terms of how they might help each other. So that's quite a lot, but it certainly keeps me out of mischief. Could, could I? Yes, thanks. <laughs> Two things I, I, I hadn't realised you had, you had a, the research part of, of your world. I knew you did research. And the other thing that I've, I've learned on this call already is that you play the bassoon. Do you still play? <laughs> well, I still own a bassoon. Um, the ridiculous thing about even mentioning the bassoon is it, it takes the conversation into carry-on um, territory. Uh, for example, um, one of the reasons why I don't currently play my bassoon is that my bassoon needs servicing. Perhaps I should leave that there. Yes. Okay. Moving on. Could you just um, let people know who you've managed and who you manage? Continue sure. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, um, my uh, career, as I say, began with a band called The Levelers, who headlined Glastonbury, had one platinum and five gold records, and still run their own festival, the Beautiful Days Festival down in Devon, which, if you haven't heard of it, is only probably because it sells out every year with no advertising and no sponsorship. It's very successful. It's, I think, now 20,000 people. Um, but I don't look after them anymore. These days, I've got um, four main artists on my stable, um, Aqualung, he won a Grammy Award last year, which is great. Got a new record coming out this year. Uh, Duke Special from Belfast, uh, who my assistant Fran does the day-to-day -day management for. A Mercury Music-nominated uh, artist called Sweet Billy Pilgrim. And a brand new act from Belfast called Exiles. Fantastic, thank you. Thank you very much. We're going to go all over. I mean, I, th I think you're such a fantastic interviewee, and we've had a few chats before this call about really, you know, the, the point of these podcasts is to try and gear up young musicians to have a think about what's in front of them if they're, if they're looking to move from having music as very much a hobby, like uh, lots of people have, and try and make a living out of it. And I think, you know, you, you lecture on this subject, which is, which is great, but you've also got real-life experience of... of taking people from the beginning to considerable levels of success but I thought maybe we start by going back to the basics and lots of people talk about the industry the music industry the music business different ways of calling it um, it covers a range of activities how, how do you define the industry well that's yes I mean that's a really good question and I think yeah one of the things that makes it so impenetrable is the fact that um, it's not something which is very easy to describe and in fact one of the things that I looked at when I started the research company was to try to sort of picture what the music industry might be and in a nutshell I suppose um, the simple answer perhaps is that there are two significant pillars of the music industry around which everything else works one of them is music creation we all if we're going to be involved in music are probably going to make it in some way whether we write our own music or whether we play other people's music um, that's some sort of music creation so the whole process perhaps from being in a rehearsal room um, writing music to recording it to releasing it the whole marketing side of that that's one big pillar and the second big pillar is probably the live music industry everything that's currently really suffering thanks to Covid, but, but um, in, in happier times, everything from the tiniest venue up to the biggest festival uh, and all of the ancillary businesses around that. And I think the interesting thing about those two things is, is, the, is the relationship that they have with each other. That for many years, the music creation industry was significantly bigger um, and really bands and artists would tour to promote the music that they made. When piracy hit and, and Napster and, and the early 2000s and suddenly um, it was very hard to make money from making music for about a decade, the live music industry became the biggest part and perhaps for a little while people were making albums in order to promote their tours. It was a complete sort of reversal of relationship. Uh, and then before Covid hit it, it felt a bit more like the two were 
in some ways um, equal with each other, which I think was a very exciting kind of balance. And hopefully uh, we'll return to that in, in some ways. And then around that, you maybe have other smaller bits, music education, of which perhaps this is part, uh, all the different types of music education from from school, college and university through to instrumental um, tuition and everything around that. Bassoons. Um, bassoons, indeed. There aren't enough bassoons if you're if you were up for, for orchestras. Music tourism uh, and uh, tourism and heritage, that whole world, which is, is obviously um, worth a lot of money. And um, if you're in Liverpool or if you're in Memphis, perhaps your entire city might be based upon music tourism in terms of its economy. And then obviously the, the professional services and the, the marketing and the fan base building that sort of circle around everything else. So I, I think sometimes if we want to start out in music, getting a little feel for where we fit or where we want to fit perhaps into that world can be really useful. I guess the, the sort of audience that we're aiming for with this podcast are, are the audience of music makers and performers. So it's the two big pillars that drive it. I mean, I guess, I guess the creation side, the music makers, bit, the m- making records, making songs, you would probably split down, or, or certainly people within those industries would probably split it into two sections, wouldn't they, of, of more recording-based and then song-based. Do you agree? Yes, certainly the fact that there are these two different copyrights now that word can send everybody myself included scurrying uh, (laughs) as far away as possible because it's a nasty old area but it's still one that we have to kind of face up to the fact that yes uh, many of us write our own music and then record it but not all of us Um, and so actually understanding that they're two different things is really important but I think what's exciting about where we are now compared with where we might be might have been 30 years ago is that we almost needed other people's permission in the past to even be allowed to sort of start that process. We'd need to to have the money to go into a recording studio. We'd probably need to have a relationship with a record company in order to make that music that we'd either written or recorded or both into something that other people could hear, whether that be vinyl or cassette or CD or whatever. And now suddenly here we are in a situation where both there's a huge democratisation of the process. The fact that um, all of the recording materials, the fact that most of us are having to do any of that at home right now, for example, is something that is available to most of us. I mean, maybe recording a drum kit is a bit more complicated, but most other things we can teach ourselves to do and we can afford the, the tools that we need. And then once we've actually made that music, thanks to the distributors that I call aggregators that many of us will have heard of, such as TuneCore and CD Baby and Ditto and DistroKid, we can release it without anyone else's permission, without any gatekeepers, without anyone actually choosing us. And that's obviously an incredible opportunity for tens and hundreds of thousands of people to actually join the game. But obviously what comes with that is the fact that it suddenly becomes a significantly larger pool of of creativity. And the most recent statistic says that 60,000 songs are released onto these platforms, the Spotify's of this world, every single day. Every day? Day, yeah. Day. Now, um, I do not have a figure for what that might have been in, in 1985, for example, but I wouldn't be surprised if that figure was more like, I don't know, 500. So um, the, the difference is something that I still I mean, don't... Or even 500 a week, to be honest. It's not quite possible. <laughs> yeah. Certainly the in ram- the UK. <laughs> well, this is the thing, the ramifications yeah. for this are extraordinary. The fact that 
you know, those, those as I, I call them, gatekeepers. In the old yeah. days, if you were the person deciding what was going to get played on Radio 1, if you were the person who was deciding what was getting reviewed in a magazine or a newspaper, you'd be sent a pile of things every week. And um, you'd probably at least be able to listen to some of all of it. When you've got 60,000 songs every day, well, we know uh, that that's um, literally impossible. Um, so it's a completely different world that those of us that um, want to get started in it looks like compared with, with decades ago. On the one hand, yes, we can participate without other people's either help or permission, but on the other hand, we've got 59,999 other people uh, looking at us uh, quizzically. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it obviously looks very glamorous from the outside the music industry. It also looked, I mean, I remember from my own time outside of the industry, I'm, I think I've been in it over 30 years now. It looks sort of intimidating as well. What what questions should a young musician be asking themselves before taking the plunge to try and build a career in it? Well, I think they certainly should be asking themselves questions. And certainly I've noticed over the years um, a number of the artists that I've managed have, well, in fact, one of them even um, put in one of his songs the lyric, be careful what you hope and you pray for. And I think that the reason why he did that was that um, he started out with his brother, they were in a band together, assuming, without really thinking about it, that sort of touring the world was his absolute ambition. And there he was probably on a rainy Monday night in Salt Lake City, which probably sounds very glamorous to the rest of us, uh, missing his family, the fact that he had two young children at the time, and thinking, is this what I really want? And um, I think that it's perhaps a question that we don't always ask ourselves, that actually it's a very unusual uh, way of life, very, very much one where you have very little routine, for starters, which is certainly perfect for me. You're away from home, you're away from friends and family. Uh, the potential for going down um, addiction routes is, <laughs> is, is, is being thrown in your face if you're the sort of person who perhaps is likely to uh, succumb to that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I saw a report recently, it's, it's phenomenal, the um, percentage of gigging musicians who have mental health problems and addiction problems relative to the, the whole population, it's, it's, it's quite considerable. And I think it's, it's obviously probably a, a subject for a podcast of another time, but I think it's yeah. partly the sorts of people who are attracted to the career as well as what yes. actually happens to people. So I think it's, it's a complicated relationship. Um, you know, we are not uh, perhaps the sorts of people who um, want to settle down with a cup of tea and the one show. That's the nature of, of those of us who are, who are going into an unusual career. So I, I think it is certainly really important for anyone who wants to be involved in music to actually look at what they want out of life. And it's, it's definitely, for most people, a huge struggle. So if you want an easy life, there's probably much easier ways. And there's probably actually easier ways of making money if you're the sort of person who just wants to get rich. However, you know, I, I have been involved in, in music since 1986, and I, much as, as um, the lows are possibly even lower than the highs, um, I love the fact that I have no idea what's around the corner at any one moment. And, and that, I think, is one of the most exciting things about it for me. Yeah, no, it's, it's me too. It's a, it's a fantastic industry to be in. I mean, I think the other thing that uh, people probably come in, or a, a good proportion of people come in thinking, is they, they see the superstars. They see, you know, your Beyonce, your Beatles, your Beyonce's, your Jay-Z's, and they think they'd rather like a little bit of that. And I, th I think one thing to bear in mind is that 
most of the people working in the industry get nowhere near those kind of levels. Yes, and I think this is a, it's a sort of a, a pyramid situation here where that, that, those top superstars who um, are multimillionaires and, um, um, and live a, a very different life to lives that most of us could even understand are incredibly few and far between. And um, I think, um, have they got there entirely by talent? Is it luck? Is it timing? Um, who knows? I think it varies from, from um, person to person. But I think for most of us, we have to look at a situation where we're going, yeah, we want ideally to make a living from our music so that we don't need a portfolio career, which is what we call a situation where you have to wear a number of hats in order to actually be allowed to kind of continue your musical career. And I think that's what I mean by actually having some sort of understanding of what it is that you want. What, what is it that makes you happy? Is it um, nobody telling you what sort of music that you should be making, having 100% decision making around what your songs are, what sort of music you make, regardless of commerciality? Is it being your own boss? Is it wanting a record deal? Is it wanting money? Uh, is it wanting to headline a festival? You know, having those sort of little goals, <clears throat> I think, really helps in order to sort of understand the journey that you want to go on. When, when 60,000 songs are released every day, there is no way that anyone, myself included, as a manager who might take on an artist, can promise anybody anything. Um, you can promise that you want to go on that journey with them. But it's, um, it's one of those things where, as we might discuss later, my view is because of the hugely kind of crowded marketplace that we're in, you have to get to a certain point on your journey before that talent, whether you're any good or not, or whether the music you make is popular or not, even comes into play. You've got to get through that, those initial stages of getting, getting through the, the competition of all of these songs before that really comes into play. And luckily, if you get that far, <clears throat> it's quite a democratic situation. If, if people hear you on their playlists, hear you on the radio, see you at a gig, whatever it might be, and they like you, they'll listen to you again. They'll buy your ticket. But you've got to get there first. Yeah, no, that, I'd very much like to talk about that. I, I know you've got some good good um, kind of structural thinking that I think people might find it quite useful to, to learn about. Um, maybe we could just start off. Um, what, what, are, what are the key kind of activities that an up-and-coming musician should concentrate on to prepare themselves for, for that for that time when, when, when they come to people's attention? Well, I think um, let's <clears throat> be very clear that obviously loving your craft, writing music, making music, getting good at that comes first. It's, it, it's something that, that it's not so interesting to talk about or need necessary to talk about. And, and the fact that we can get lost in all sorts of other fan base building minutiae can make it sound like it doesn't matter. But it really is obviously the most important thing of all to keep that enjoyment and to get good at what it is that you love matters more than anything. Yeah. So let's place that on side. And then I think that, that, that in terms of some of the misnomers, um, the first thing really is that whether you like it or not to begin with, you're on your own. Um, whether you're a solo artist or a band, and band, you're on your own. You're not going to have a situation where um, a manager or a label or any of those industry people are looking around for, for, for artists with no fan base and no track record. You've got to get to a certain point before anyone is going to pay any attention unless you happen to be unbelievably brilliant or unbelievably lucky. 
For the rest or, of us. Or both. <laughs> or both. Perish the thought. Exactly. For the rest of us, you know, we've, we've really got to get stuck in. And, um, and even more so than, than, as I say, 20 or 30 years ago because of the competition. And what that's really about is building some, some fans who care. Of finding people who actually are not just our friends and family who will support us to begin with. Um, of course they will. But but the people who actually think we're pretty good and they're likely to be uh, drawn from our local community. With most situations where, you know, we, we start doing small shows, we might start at open mic nights, testing out our music before we actually start to play our local grassroots music venues and pubs. We might start to um, record music and decide whether we really understand our genre and what we're good at and what we like, those, those early stages. But once we, we're starting to get to the point where we, we know who we are, we obviously are in a situation where there are huge numbers of ways of communicating with our potential fan base. Again, when I started, and I don't want to be too historical here, but I think it's, it's worth pointing out that when I started managing the levellers, this direct artist-to-fan relationship was something that, that didn't really exist. It, it, it's not that long ago that if you wanted to know what your, your favourite band was up to, you had to buy the weekly music papers and scour every column to see if they were recording or releasing or touring or anything. There was no other way of doing so. Whereas, of course, now there are hundreds of ways of doing so. And, um, and I started out the first um, director fan physical snail mail thing where I, I found that the addresses of 50,000 Levelers fans by asking people who came to on tour where they lived to fill in a form. And, uh, and we were the first band. It was very expensive in those days because we had to send out 50,000 postcards which had to be manufactured. We had to buy stamps for them and we had to post them. That's what you had to do. So it's all a bit easier than that now, but because it's easier than that for everybody, um, we're all competing for people's attention. So I, I, that would be pre-email, would it? That was pre-email. That was yeah. 1992, 1993, when um, we literally said to Simon Moran, who at SJM Concerts, the promoter, we said, look, when you print the tickets for this next tour, that stub that comes back to the promoter, can you put name dot 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 address dot 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 on there to encourage the fan, not we can't force them, to let us know where they live. And we were playing to 70,000 people and 50,000 of them uh, gave us their name and address. So I was handed literally four bin liners full of stubs of paper at the end of the tour, which of course I, Muggins, had to stay up until 2am every night typing into a database um, so that we had the ability to tell 50,000 Levelers fans what we were doing. And that, if you like, is, is the beginning of the direct artist-to-fan relationship, which has now got so complicated and exciting um, in 2021. And much easier. E well, yes and no. Is it really easy when you are one of, I mean, let's face it, these, these 60,000... A number that I keep rolling out, but if you're, you know, you're going to have a whole number of competing artists competing for the time of a fan who might be subscribed to any hundreds, possibly even thousands of artists who are telling them what they're up to. We know that we might read something off a screen and forget it five seconds later because it's one of literally hundreds of pieces of information that are coming in that day. So yes, it's easier but it's also much, much harder. Yeah. 
competing for attention. Competing that, for that, attention. That is the modern world, isn't it? it? It absolutely is. And then I think, you know, obviously we want to build this this community of people who, who are interested in what we're doing. And, you know, historically these days, the way that we mostly might do that is, is through social media, specifically depending on our age and our genre, maybe Facebook and Instagram. Um, I think it's always really important to, to remember that this is information that we don't own. And although it's ours, in inverted commas, um, my sort of um, cliched stories, what happens if um, Mark Zuckerberg discovered God uh, this afternoon and decided that social media was an evil thing? He could literally switch it off. He, we would have no comeback if he switched it off. We might have sat there and built our 1.5 million fans that somebody like Bastille might have. Uh, and suddenly we don't have access to that information anymore because it's not ours, it's his. So I'm not saying don't use social media because that would be crazy. Absolutely use it, but remember that. And the best way, and I check this with with marketeers who are far more cutting edge than me i check this every couple of months the best way of building a fan database that we do own is still asking them for their email address email feels quite old-fashioned and when i talk to, to younger people they do look at me quizzically but whether it's bots or ai or vr or anything else at the moment that is still the best way of building a list of our fans that we actually own in a way that we don't own our social media. Yeah, I guess you know I, that was one thing I wanted to touch on was the, the sort of hierarchy of, of, of methods of communication. And I guess it's 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 they can't take it if somebody's given you um, their email address, nobody can take it away from you. Whereas if you're allowed to connect on a platform, you can lose that platform. Um, and you're saying, yeah, Mark Zuckerberg finds God, but you know. You, <laughs> Even the president of the United States was taken off social media um, yep. before the last election. So if he can be taken off, anybody can be taken off. And you know, it could be it could be morality or obscenity or you know you, things that that are acceptable one year and not acceptable another. Or it could vary from country to country. So I completely agree. Email sounds old-fashioned. Hey, a mobile phone number as well. If you could text people, that, that's yep. that's similar, isn't it? Absolutely, it's that, a direct route to people. If you can, if you can build that up, hey, even even an address would be good. <laughs> that's probably beyond the pale these days. <laughs> well, um, and it's expensive, but um, 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 yeah, we we also know from the days of MySpace. Uh, that things change and they change incredibly fast. We do not know what's around the corner when it comes to uh, social media, um, the, the, what might be coming out of China, where you know, TikTok really as an idea originally came out of China. There's ideas of, of social media and streaming coming together and, and being something slightly different to what we have already. We know through any number of things that have just been discussed, NFT and what's going on with TikTok and what's going on with Triller. And, and you know, it's, it's a really fast moving world. And I think this is why I do keep reminding musicians to, <laughs> that the music matters most, because if we're not careful, we trying to build a fan base can become a full-time job and it can become very demoralizing and, and any number of, of creative people have said to me this isn't what I signed up for but as I say it feels to me a little bit like a kind of a, an assault course and we need to get to the end of that assault course before uh, we can be noticed by as I say the managers the agents the labels and the other people who might help us um, and, and be part of our team but before that we're probably on our own, or at least with our smart friends. If you've got brilliant 
of friends who are brilliant videographers or brilliant artists or whatever else it might be. Things that can be the non-playing members of your team, um, then by all means find them because um, they can be the difference that really helps you get noticed on these platforms. Yeah, and, and you know what what sticks out as well is 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 the way you look, your your attitude, your I mean you can push those things um, too much, but but you've got to stand out a little bit. And yeah, any any help you can get from people. Um, creating i guess we're talking about image to a certain extent here um you want to gobble them up as long as long as it, it, you feel comfortable with it well this is the, yeah i mean i think there are two areas which just sound dry and dull and i totally understand when when creative people look at me and want to run a mile <clears throat> and one of them is is rights exploitation it's copyright it's understanding that we are making something that is worth uh, money and understanding the system around that and the other one is brand building and those words are really dry and really dull um, but equally we have to grasp them we have to find a way to make them slightly less dull and, and find a way to make musicians understand that yes at some point somebody like me will say okay I'll, I'll help steer those sides of your work so that you can go off on tour and do those things that you're brilliant at but there aren't enough great managers to go around. There aren't enough, um, even half decent labels to go around. Uh, so um, we've got to start off on our own. I guess that you, you, you're, you're talking about moving towards a point where where people begin to notice you and recognise if you're talent and that there are some steps that you've got to go through. How, how, how can people sort of put a structure around that and, and, and sort of establish where they are in the development process well it's, it's a very good point it's something that i'm trying to do and i'm spending a bit of time on what i'm doing is actually building ladders i'm saying to myself well if if zero is the smallest artist in the world somebody who's literally making their own first song today and 10 is the biggest artist in the world whether that's justin bieber ed sheeran um bts whoever it happens to be today depending on how we we choose to define that what does that that journey looked like. And so the first thing I really did was I, I tried to get some data and say, well, how, how many Facebook fans has Ed Sheeran got? How many streams on Spotify has he got? How many people does he play to when he tours? What does Ed Sheeran look like in numbers? And so I, I, I looked at that. And then I kind of calibrated this, this journey from naught to Sheeran in, into sort of 10 steps. And when I'd done that, I thought, well, actually, in this sort of big 10-step ladder, it's really at about four on that ladder that perhaps the music industry starts to take notice. And then, so then I took those first three steps, the steps where the industry didn't care, and I kind of elongated them into 10 steps. So that was my DIY ladder from, from zero to industry. Now, I'm constantly refining this. It's not something that I've necessarily published yet, although um, I'm happy for you to make available where I'm at right now. But so the idea really was how many fan email names do I need to be at DIY 10 on my ladder? How, how big does my biggest song on Spotify need to look like? How many monthly listeners do I need? How many people might I 
be able to sell tickets to in my hometown or in London. There are any number of things that we can quantify, we can put into numbers. And I think it's something that, that we don't always like doing in music because you can't really mark a song out of 10. You know, one of us might think it's the best song in the world and one of us might think it's garbage. So music is, is, is utterly subjective and, and, and so it should be. And that's why we all care because um, we all have different tastes. But in terms of building this fan base, it is quantifiable. And I think that this is one of the ways in which I hope that we can help DIY artists see where they are on the journey and see where they're going. So for example, if, um, if you imagine this ladder um, and you come to me and I have a, a little look at what, how many fans you have, I might say, okay, well, you're at about step three on the ladder. You need to get up to 10 really, probably, because this is no exact science, before a manager is going to come to your gig or, or, or a label might listen to your most recent song with a view to deciding if it's for them or not. Uh, so you've got seven steps to go up still on your own. How are you going to get there? Well, then I start sort of imagining that there is this word that I think is, is really important to understand on this journey. And that word is momentum, um, because that's when things get exciting. And that's when there starts to be some sort of maybe word of mouth. You start to appear on playlists. Something is happening. It's not always easy to actually totally understand how or why, uh, but, but, but there is momentum. And that's really when things get interesting, but you have to be prepared for it. So again, what I will always say to, to anybody who's just thinking of releasing a song, I'm saying, have you got the next two or three or possibly more ready in case this song does well because if this song starts to do to, to, to well and to appear on playlists or anywhere else and you're not ready to follow it up six eight ten twelve weeks later then what are you doing you're starting again it's like a game of snakes and ladders you've gone back down the ladder and um that i'm going to mix my metaphors here but that starting the car getting that taxi meter ticking is really hard you don't want to make it harder for yourself um so actually being ready for potential success is hugely important mm. and I, th I think it's worth emphasizing i mean you, you said it this this isn't about in any way diminishing the value the individuality the creativity of the music that's sort of taken as red, but that's not enough to get you to the attention of people who can then really accelerate your career. And I, I, I just think because this data is available, people can look and see, you know, how many followers you've got, or, or, or um, how many people listen to you on, on on various listening platforms. If a manager commits an awful lot of their time, their life, to try to, to develop your career, and an A&R man for a, who, who the, the guys that choose um, people to come and sign onto their label or into their publishing um, company, they it's a risky job and, and they would like things to help justify their decision. And so I, I love this. I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, some people are not very comfortable with numbers, but it's, 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 if you can break it down into these steps of achievement, it just gives these decision makers it gets rid of their reasons not to take you seriously or even to listen to you it forces them to listen to you so i'm i'm just very very enthusiastic about it <laughs> well i think you know it's it's it, it can be um tough but it's that sort of feeling that i'm not going in blind i i, I think the worst thing for any artist or any band is well we don't really know where we're up to um in terms of what we're doing we don't really know where we're going 
And because we don't really know where we're going, we've got no idea how to get there. Now, that's a pretty shitty place to be. And, and I think that's sort of almost how the industry likes it. Um, I think the industry makes it can make itself deliberately complicated. You can only need to look at the legalese of a record contract to, to, to think about that and, and the way that, that royalty structures are <clears throat> that, that mean that people don't want them to be less leaky because they're, if they're less leaky, they probably have to pay out more. There are all sorts of things where you could get sort of um, quite conspiratorial about and go, well, it's, it's oblique for these reasons. However, I think, you know, the, the other thing to imagine to sort of make things maybe a little bit easier and a little bit with a bit more daylight is the idea of, of sort of competitor analysis. So there you are, you've worked out really where you are on this famous ladder and you might have worked out where you want to be. Who else do you know that's ahead of you on that journey? What about your friends bands or your friends that are singer-songwriters that actually have bigger fan bases or are playing to more people than you? Um, they may be only a little bit further along the road, but they're further along. How did they get there? What were their breaks, lucky or otherwise? Um, and if they're of a similar genre to you, is there anything you can learn from that? And then later on in the, in the journey, who are the signed artists that you respect that you um, think sound like you, that perhaps have a fan base who might like your music. Who are they and how did they get to where they get to? Everybody has significant moments in their career. I mean, with, with Aqualung, for example, we had this um, amazing, I'm gonna, can I tell a story? Is that allowed? Yes, please. Fantastic story time now. <laughs> so um, I mentioned Matt Hales and his brother, Ben. They were in a band called, originally called Ruth, the girl's name Ruth, which I thought wasn't the greatest name personally. I think they might have even been named after the character on the Archers. How weird. <laughs> anyway, but I thought they, they wrote these great sort of power pop songs. Uh, so I became their manager. We changed their name to the 45s after the 45 RPM single, which seemed to me because they wrote these great power pop three minute tunes. That seemed like a better name to me. Didn't work, but anyway, I got them what's known as a singles deal with um, a label called Mercury, uh, who are part of, were part of Universal. When, when you get signed to a singles deal, they mean they're kind of dipping their toe in the water. They're gonna spend a little bit of money on you and see how that goes. And if it goes well, then perhaps they'll turn it into an albums deal. So it's better than nothing. So there we were sort of inching our way up the ladder um, when there was a change of um, boss at the top. And the new boss often cleans out the roster, decides which artists he or she doesn't like and, and starts again. And we were one of the ones who got cleaned out. I got that message, you've been dropped. You're not on the label anymore. Um, it's become part of my job as a manager to give bands and artists bad news. It's not my favorite thing, but you have to do it. So I sat the band down and told them sadly that we didn't have a record label anymore. But I said, don't worry, I really believe in you. I'll find um, us a new home, it'll all be fine. But they'd been going for a lot longer than, um, than I'd been with them and perhaps they knew better. And they said, you know what, Phil? We think we've reached the end of the road. We think we're gonna split up. So I was disappointed. I'd got this far with them, I still believed in them, but I also knew that the singer was the, had written the songs and was perhaps the talent and perhaps the one that I needed to keep um, involved with. He went home, no band, no money, um, but he um, had had a couple of bits of success uh, writing music for adverts on TV. 
Uh, nothing famous, nothing well-known, sort of instrumental bits for Wrigley's chewing gum or something. So he rang his, his friend in that world and said, look, is there anything that I can put some music forward for, um, for adverts or, or for music for TV or film or games or, or any of that stuff? And his friend said, well, it's funny you should call today, he said, because I was just thinking about the fact that two years ago, Volkswagen shot an ad for their Beetle. And it was a beautiful ad, had no voiceover. Um, and so the music was really important for it. But they only had one song in mind that they wanted to use for this ad. And it was a song that those of us a little older might remember called Beautiful Freak by an American band called The Eels. Um, but sadly, uh, the main guy from the Eels didn't like his music being used for adverts. And so he basically turned them down flat, said, not for any money in the world, can you use my song to advertise Volkswagen? Now, this is not entirely unusual, but usually when this happens, the ad company go on to the next song and think, well, okay, we can't get our first choice. What's our second choice? For some reason, I'll probably never find out why, uh, what Volkswagen did at this point was left the ad figuratively on the shelf and did nothing with it. But um, my, friend, my artist's friend had the film. He said, look, Matt, I'm going to send you the Volkswagen ad. I think if you write the right piece of music for this, perhaps they'll put it on telly. Sounds like the plot of a Hollywood movie, this. Anyway, so that night he stayed up all night and wrote a song called Strange and Beautiful and delivered it to his friend who delivered it to Volkswagen, who loved it. And they loved it so much that they thought, we're not going to plaster this all over TV. We're just going to put it in the ad breaks of the really, really big shows that we're showing right now, which in those days were pretty similar to now, Coronation Street and The X Factor. So if you were watching either of those shows, 20 million people, um, in the ad break, you'd suddenly hear a piece of music advertising the Volkswagen Beetle. Very easy to hear because there was no voiceover. And people started going into HMV asking to buy the Volkswagen song which obviously nobody at HMV uh, uh, had any idea what it was. And then people started ringing Radio 1 and requesting the Volkswagen song, which again, nobody at Radio 1 had any idea what it was. And so eventually somebody tracked me down and said, can you send us a copy of this song, 30 seconds of which is on telly? And I rang Matt and said, um, OK, I'm sending a CDR to Joe Wiley, who in those days had the morning show on Radio 1. Uh, what are you called? You've got 30 <laughs> minutes to decide the name of you as an artist. Um, and, and he chose the name Aqualung, which we then discovered um, being the title of a Jethro Tull album. There were all sorts of tribute bands and there were some difficulties in, in names, but that's again for another story. But Radio 1, daytime, started playing this unsigned artist. And you think of the, the tens of thousands of pounds that all the major labels spend on marketing trying to get this to happen. And, um, and, and there we were getting our song played straight off the bat onto daytime Radio 1. The labels started ringing me going, oh, we'd like to meet this, this Aqualung chap. Uh, Matt was smart enough to know, look, this ad's not going to be on telly forever. Um, I need to write a whole album. I don't want to, uh, to be a one-hit wonder here. And so I found myself in that really unusual place of saying to labels, you can only meet my artist if you put an actual record company offer on the table in writing because I'm not wasting his time. He's busy recording an album. And um, we got six massive record company offers and we got five big publishing offers. And so began um, a career that's lasted from that year, which was 2001, to date. And it all came out of that particular moment. And I think the, these sort of these luck and timing things can be uh, how things begin. 
and and he became a very successful sync artist that song was a number six hit that album was a gold record and he's uh, as i say won a grammy award last year so sometimes it's from really unusual moments with the levelers perhaps it was more literally building a career fan by fan and here we are now where they run this music festival where it's perhaps sometimes the sons and granddaughters of the original fans who are still loyally uh, supporting the brand that they've built. Uh, every situation is very, very different. And it's understanding when you have to be really, really proactive. And as I say, sort of almost build these, these lists person by person. And then when you have to be reactive, when these momentum moments happen and you take best advantage of them. I think that, that, that's a fantastic story and, and illustrates your point very, very well. Just one thing for people listening, sync, you use the, the, the term sync, that means um, synchronisation, it means anything where you put music to a piece of film. So it can be an ad in the case of Aqualung or it could be a film or a TV show, just, just so people know. What, mm-hmm. what, what I wouldn't mind do, doing, um, Phil, is just, just describe... Um, thank you very much for, for agreeing that I can put this on the website. So if you yeah. go to gigomi.co, G-I-G-O-M-I.co, you'll be able to see an example of this. And as, as Phil says, it's, it's a work in, in um, process, uh, in development, and the things he's tracking change. But it's a great way of just picturing where you are. And the version that I've got is is... There are some numbers you should be looking to achieve in this, you're calling it the DIY ladder, do-it-yourself ladder, mm. to get you to that point where you're, you're ready. Um, or you you certainly built the profile uh, and, and the experience levels to be taken seriously and, and, and considered by, by the wider industry. So we've got coloured blue, you've got you've got basically building your fan base. And you, you do, down the left-hand side, you go DIY 1 to 10, which are the ladder steps. And then across the top, you've got the different things you can do. So... You've mentioned building an email list, but you've also put Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and YouTube. And then you've put some numbers in that show you how you how you're progressing along that ladder. And then I guess you've got you've got um, followers in, in um, on the music platforms in Apple and Spotify, etc. How many people are following you? You, you? If you look at the top of Spotify, you get your monthly uh, followers number, which, which I always have a look at whenever we're considering signing someone. And then I always have a look at how many, how many streams of individual songs are happening. Have they got any big ones that it's worth me going to have a look at right now? So you put some numbers in for that. And then you're talking about ticket sales, which is uh, you know, live performance, both in hometown, you're describing it, and London. And, and something in, in merch as well. So back to your pillars. Your pillars are making music, uh, which I guess is within the, the the Spotify and the Apple area. And then there's outplaying music live, which is the ticketing. And then the, the underlying thing of building a building your fan base, building people who like you, which is the blue stuff. So mm-hmm. have a look at it. Could you maybe just talk through in a, a little bit more detail about mm. how how you how you see this potentially being used? Sure. Yes. Yeah, so there's a lot of numbers there for anyone who who goes there. And and the first thing really to say is is don't feel like you have to um, take part in every platform. You know, even right now, we're looking at adding TikTok into the, the lists. And the, the fact of the matter is, if, if you spent so much time building these things, you'd never make any music or your music would suffer. And we've all got limited time and limited money. So, But it is a case of actually, even if you don't like this stuff, trying to make some time every week to go, I have to 
um, both communicate with my current fan base and and um, and try to build these numbers and experiment with what works and what doesn't work. So you know, some people will be um, good at Instagram and some people will be making lots of, of visual stuff on YouTube. So it is first of all when it comes to how you communicate with your followers, it's which platforms work best for you. It's not you might be on all of them, but you will certainly concentrate on on um, one well two or three. I would say that's the first thing. To be clear on but you know i do say everybody should start an email list even if it's very small to begin with um, mailchimp that's spelt m-a-i-l new word c-h-i-m-p is an example of an email company one of many but the first two thousand fans you have it's free to use their their system so it's not costing you anything to begin with just just for people listening i will put links so if you go to the website and look there'll be a page for phil nelson podcast there will be a lot of um, details that you can uh, click on links and, and find these things. I'll also put these on the notes on uh, your normal podcast platforms, Spotify and Apple, etc. So the minute you've written a song that you're really proud of, you absolutely should uh, have a relationship with the streaming platforms, with the Spotify's, the Apple Music's, the Amazon's, the Deezer's. Um, one day they will make you some money. Um, however, to begin with, it's actually more important to look at people, any of the platforms where you have an actual relationship with the people who are listening or buying, i.e. they tell you who they are. And the best of those is probably Bandcamp. Bandcamp are generally seen in the industry as good guys. Why? Well, they, they don't take very much money and as a percentage. They have every month, they've been having free Fridays where they take no percentage of the money. And um, you know, you're, you're sort of using Bandcamp to build your fan base and have a relationship with your fan base. It's also something you should do when it comes to anything that you can make a small run of physically. Um, people who like you, super fans, if you like, will like physical product, whether it's old fashioned T-shirts, but if it's cheaper stuff, stickers um, and um, CDs can be made in short runs for those people who actually still use them, uh, as can cassettes. Beware of vinyl um, because it, these days it can take over 20 weeks to manufacture vinyl. And I think that the shortest run is probably 300 in terms of doing it in any sort of economic fashion. And if you're anything like me, if you're not careful, you look under the bed and there is hundreds and hundreds of unsold pieces of vinyl or other merchandise. So beware optimism, um, but equally think about the sorts of things, whether it's music or any other artifacts, uh, that the fan base that you're building might like. And that'll obviously depend from genre to genre and age group to age group. And I guess look at what other people are doing on Bandcamp to, for ideas. Absolutely that. I think looking at these days, it's amazing how how bizarre your merchandise can be. To take an example of another artist that I manage, Duke Special. Uh, Duke Special would consider his music to be sort of, uh, I think he calls it hobo chic, whatever that means. I call it new wave vaudeville, whatever that means. Uh, whatever it does mean, he will... I, I first encountered Duke Special and bizarrely playing, I think, at the National Theatre and he was doing yes. some music for Mother Courage. Mother Courage by Brett. And that's in itself a, a, an amazing story, but possibly not for now. I have to admit, I was sort of in tears listening to his songs from that. I thought they were so wonderful. It, it was a, a great example, again, of, of pivoting a career. I will yeah. touch on it briefly because he was just doing fairly standard, um, fairly standard gigs in fairly standard gig venues.
venues. Uh, but we got invited to do a an Oscars party, um, as you do. <laughs> and uh, the, the theatre director, Deborah Warner, was there and she invited uh, Fiona Shaw, who ended up um, playing Mother Courage um, at the National, uh, to hear Duke's special. And they commissioned him to write brand new songs for this musical that they were going to put together. And when he'd written them, they said, well, actually, because of the, the, the unusual nature of you, rather than getting Mother Courage to sing these songs, can you come on stage every night and sing the songs that you've written, sometimes for her, sometimes with her? And through that, most people, again, when it comes to music theatre, it's a slow build. We went from nothing to 67 sold-out performances of a 1,600-capacity national theatre, i.e. 100,000 people. Uh, so it was, again, one of those slightly unusual but import incredibly important pivotal moments yeah i'm now um, on the list and i regularly buy bits of vinyl i used to buy bits of cds from, from him and and i've had a, the old t-shirt uh, yeah it works one of one of our most successful merchandise lines um was the fact that he has a fantastic percussionist who comes on stage um actually moving his percussion from venue to venue is ridiculous because it's not just a drum kit it's a sort of almost uh, any number of coat hanger racks worth of things that he can hit but for two or three songs he would come out to the front of the stage literally with just a cheese grater and a whisk and would actually play the cheese grater and whisk as the percussion to go with the song and so because this was so popular with the audience i was dispatched to tesco's and asked to buy as many cheese graters and whisks as there were on the shelves. And in fact, I asked for more. And then we, we, we wrote the rudiments, the instruction manual of playing the cheese grater and whisk, and sold them on the merchandise stand um, for a fairly large markup. And they were so unusual that they flew off. You know, people loved the idea of taking them home <laughs> as their souvenir of the show. And I'm not suggesting that anyone else should perhaps copy that one, but I know that um, Supergrass did ironing board covers. Pulp I remember that, yeah. Did pants. Um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's well, whatever you know. It is that thing of just 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 not just being sort of silly or gimmicky, but going for for our genre, for our sense of humour, for our lyrics, for our image. What can we do that that actually will make people go? Oh, I haven't got one of those, um, and that's worth thinking about. Great ideas. Just moving down the ladder then, so you've also got um, some indicators around ticket levels, and you, you mentioned hometown versus versus London. I want to just talk a little bit to that. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in this modern day and age, in some ways, tickets are the most uh, important, if you're a live act, of course, not everybody is going to play live, but if you, in terms of that idea of shelling out eight quid, shelling out 15 quid, whatever it is, it's very different from ticking a box on a Facebook page or even ticking a, a box on a Spotify page where you're not actually, you might be subscribing, but that particular act isn't, um, doesn't feel like it's costing you money, whereas buying a ticket does. So tickets can be, in many ways, the most genuine, uh, marker of how well you're doing. Everyone is going to start, well, most people are going to start building their fan base in their hometown. And so that's why I say that in the beginning of my ladder, you're not thinking really anywhere else. You just want to build that loyal fan base who tell their friends, you've got to come and see this band, this artist, they're special. Um, but at some point, 
you're going to need to move out of playing to the same people over and over again, which can be very dangerous because that can actually turn them off. Obviously, one of the things you might be doing is, is looking further afield, the, the towns and cities 20, 30 miles away. You might be doing gig swaps. You might be based in, I don't know, Worthing, and you've got a friend who's based in Chichester. Right, you come and support my band, I'll go and support your band. Suddenly, potentially, you've got twice as many followers, if you're any good. Oh, I see by support you actually mean... Opening. Uh, lower on the bill. Yes, absolutely. Yes, not, not just go and cheer them on. No, yeah. no, no, actually playing with. Yeah. Yeah. So you build your audience in a new town. That's a great Correct. idea. Absolutely. And I think um, that sort of networking approach is something else that, that the best artists put a lot of time into, is, is going to find who are the, the like-minded and like-sounding artists um, that are in our county, in our region, that we can reach out to, and actually, rather than see ourselves as direct competitors, see ourselves as, as fighting the same battle. And, and I mean, but, just if you look back through the history of music and... I would all. I mean, I would always recommend you read stories about how people have done things in the old days because the actual core of what they've done repeats and repeats and repeats. But you look back and and creating a scene where there's lots of people playing similar sorts of music with a similar sort of outlook that can be very very exciting for the industry. Then they come and feed off you, and sign many 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 artists within that scene. So this networking not only helps you build an audience but could help help develop a scene absolutely right i mean it, it's it is that, that slightly weird thing right now that, that especially if you um <clears throat> if your genre your style of music is slightly unusual good news is that obviously rather than um your town being the, the number of people who like to hear you it's the world um, so you might find that actually 75 percent of your audience are in chile uh, that might be slightly difficult to reach for many years until you get invited to play a festival in Chile in eight years' time. But at least, you know, the people who are into um, Wolf's Grindcore, I've just made up a genre there, um, happen to all be based in Chile. So th there is that. So the, the, the concept of scenes is slightly different to how it might have been in the days of sort of Big Beat in Brighton or the Delta Sonic label in Liverpool, or, or the postcard records in Glasgow, whatever it might be. We don't have quite the sort of the, the same types of scene, but we still have like-minded bands who can work with each other to actually build their fan bases. But at some point, um, the problem with the music industry is that, sure, um, um, any A&R man or woman will be clicking around the, the internet, listening to music, looking at statistics and everything else but they're not necessarily going to be always getting into their company car and driving 300 miles to see you. So perhaps at some point you're going to have to get into your van and go and see them, or at least go and start playing in London, or, if you, or whether it's London or Berlin or New York or LA or Nashville or any of those places where the industry actually does congregate. That's likely to happen later on on the ladder. So you can see that really I'm imagining that it's at perhaps DIY 5, where you might be starting to go, it's time for us to actually compete in that particular world. Because I think if you go there too early, it, as, as I have with some of my artists in the past, it can be a very soul-destroying experience. But yes, at some point you do want to be making sure that you're competing in one of the cities, London probably in terms of the UK, where um, the labels, the agents, the managers and everyone else are most likely to congregate. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm from up north and you sort of resent that London. 
but from a practical career building place that's where the vast majority of people in the industry are and uh, if you it's very unusual that you don't go through that city at some point are there any um things out there that can help artists accelerate their way along this um the, these ladders or indeed provide some sort of funding that allows them to have time off from bar jobs or whatever they're doing to 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 raise some money to actually pursue their music there there are and and in fact um, um although a lot of it has been slightly sidelined because of covid um there are all there are four main organizations who do actually have some genuinely diy artist facing funds that I would suggest taking a look at. And they vary from time to time in terms of, of what they have available, but these are they. First of all, Help Musicians UK. They used to be called the Musicians Benevolent Fund. They've rebranded themselves and they have all sorts of grants um, available throughout the year for um, early career artists. And it's absolutely worth looking at them. Similarly, the PRS Foundation, which is actually separate from the PRS, the Performing Rights Society that many artists who write songs will be members of. But they have a non-for-profit foundation that also has grants available for artists, as does the Arts Council, whether it be the Arts Council of England, Northern Ireland or elsewhere. And finally, if you're under 24, I think it is Youth Music. All four organisations have fairly um, user-friendly websites and more importantly, usually if you decide you're going to go through what many of us, myself included, um, find the tortuous process of filling in a grant application form, they do have people at the other end of a phone or an email to help you navigate your way through these things. And I have artists who've been successful in, in getting grants um, they, they, they exist and they're possible. Obviously, some of them are very um, competitive, but not all of them. Um, so it's always worth looking at that sort of thing. And the other thing always to remember, if once you started to build a fan base, is the concept of crowdfunding. Uh, that concept that if you've got a loyal fan base and you say to your loyal fan base, I, we need help to record an album, um, it's going to cost us £10,000. We haven't got a record company to do it for us. Can you help? Um, actually putting together a list of items and experiences uh, can be a way of raising that money. Uh, many of us will have heard of the concept of house concerts. If you're the sort of artist who can go and play in somebody's house, uh, then you can charge for that. And um, that could be a, a really great way of earning money. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of classic example. I think it's, uh, is it Amanda Palmer? Um, Amanda Palmer is a really interesting example. She's actually written a book called The Art of Asking, which is also a TED Talk, which you can find online. And um, um, in both instances, it's a really good way of actually understanding somebody who, who has a particularly... Um, loyal relationship with her fan base. I don't particularly like her music. I'm not sure if I even particularly like her, but I think that what she does, her approach to that, that relationship is really worth um, those of us who care and, and want to, to really ask those questions, uh, to, to take a look at what it is that she does, because there's a lot to learn from it. She's, um, I think, moved into the world of uh, Patreon. Any of these situations where you can get somebody to pay per month rather than as a one-off fee, 
is a really interesting way of establishing a relationship with the fan base. So there's an organ yes, a website, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Patreon, is really worth looking into if you feel like you can have a relationship with your fan base where you have the ability and the time to provide them with regular stuff. And that's, that's something that, as an artist, you've got to be a bit careful of because certainly I've noticed with a couple of my artists that they've over-promised and under-delivered. And that's obviously going to weaken your relationship with your fan base. So you don't want to be doing that. Uh, so being very honest about what you can do and what you can succeed in um, is, is important. But back, you know, back to your ladders, Phil, you, you can only do some of these things once you've got a certain number of followers and fans. It's back to that, isn't it? You, you create music... Pillar one, you play music live, pillar two, and then you concentrate on building an audience. And once you've got an audience, there, there are things you can do, hopefully, to, to, to raise money to enable you to grow. But it's back it to really that. Is. Amanda Palmer is brilliant at building an audience. She is, and her TED Talk, as I say, is very, just literally Google Amanda Palmer TED Talk. She's only done one, I think, and you can find that. Um, and so it is that thing of, of just making... Um, giving yourself little goals. What's my goal for the end of this week? What's my goal for the end of this month? Um, actually breaking things down into sort of doable stages when you're being proactive. And as I say, sometimes you get those great moments when you can be reactive. You've been invited to play a festival, a bigger band's invited you to open for them, whatever it might be. It's being, it's, it's sort of doing the slightly dull, slightly worthy, slightly ploddy, proactive stuff and then being ready to take advantage of the exciting reactive stuff when it happens. Yeah, proactive stuff is the building work. It's getting a process so that you've got things ready for when, when that opportunity comes so you can react. You know, if, if you haven't got things in place for email lists or, or, or social media lights or, or material up that people can explore on uh, music platforms, if, if you're summoned away to play a major festival... Or, or, or support a band based on a, a few songs. If you have, if you can't capture the, the detail of people who like you, you'll waste the opportunity. So it's really important you get the foundations right as well. It, absolutely, it's it's it, it's. I think if you look back on any, certainly if I look back on any of the artists um, <clears throat> to give an idea, I, I think I worked out that I've probably managed thirteen or fourteen artists over my career to date of which really maybe only five of them have really had any any genuine success actually that's a pretty good success rate mm. uh, if, if i may say so um although i still feel very sad about the ones that that weren't successful because i think they were just as good um as um as the ones that were but equally in every instance they, they you know they've been very different to take you know the levelers and aqua along the two stories that i've told so far they're almost opposite in terms of, of what's happened, but they both were a mixture of the proactive drudgery and the reactive, um, making sure that you take full advantage of those moments when an opportunity has presented itself to you. Well, I think that is probably a very good place to stop. I think you've managed to bring us from from somebody that's that's got a talent for music and an interest in, in potentially making a living, providing them with 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 perspective on, on what's necessary to get them to a level where they'll start being taken seriously in the industry and a number of um, tools particularly these these ladders which which I thank you I will put on the on the website for people to look at that help you understand where you are and give gives you some focus on maybe what you need to concentrate next 
Um, and I also love your, your working in small um, uh, movements, small bits of progress, but regular. Mm. Yeah. So thank you very much. Is there anything you would like to add at this point? Gosh, um, no, I think that um, it is that thing of always remembering that, that, that it's about the passion. And I do think, and I've had this conversation so often with people where they kind of think that having to, to do all this, this fan base building can feel very kind of counterproductive in terms of the, the reason that we got into this in the first place. But I think it is that thing of, of knowing that, that if you can get to that point where people reach out to help, the great thing about managers and agents and labels is the relationships they have with you is that they only earn when you earn. So they're not sort of, well, they're genuinely these days, the music industry is by no means the sort of the den of iniquity, that full of sort of evil kind of criminals that it might have been once upon a time. It, it, because of all this data, it's much less likely that you're going to be um, ripped off or, or any of that, that side of things. So when managers and agents and labels come calling, they take a percentage of your money. If they earn, you earn. You, you, in almost every situation, you earn more than they do. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's just actually having a plan and understanding how to get there. And that's hopefully what these, um, these ladders, these momentum indexes and these other bits that David mentioned uh, that you can have a look at on the website are. And um, if, uh, if you've got the, the mixture of, of passion and talent, you'll succeed. Thank you very much. Would you be interested in an overview of how the music industry really works? If so, I've put together a mini course called Learn How the Music Industry Works in just 25 minutes. And guess what? It explains how the industry works and takes about 25 minutes to listen to or read. If you'd find this helpful, go to gigami.co, that is G-I-G-O-M-I dot Click on the Start Here button. It will take you to a sign-up page. Please sign up and we will deliver the mini course to you completely free of charge. Thank you to all of my guests who have taken the time to talk with me, and thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank Miles D, who has written and recorded the Gigami theme music. And as ever, if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, if you have any questions, or if you just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co. That is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. <laughs>